We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And the drug policy problem certainly has become a huge, huge problem in the last number of years. Our jails, prisons are just filled up to the brim. America has become the world's leader in terms of incarceration of our citizens. Over the last 40 years, the incarceration rate in the U.S. has skyrocketed by nearly 400%. That's almost five times that of any other advanced industrialized democracy. Now, some have tried to blame Republicans like Nixon and Reagan, who who pushed this issue for their own political interest. But in the new book, Incarceration Nation, How the United States Became the Most Punitive Democracy in the World, author Peter K. Enns challenges that explanation. Peter Enns is associate professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University, executive director of the Roper Center for Public Opinion Research, and former faculty director of Cornell's prison education program. He's our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks so much for being with us, Professor Enns. Peter, in his new book, uh, How the United States Became the Most Punitive Democracy in the World, Enns argues that it was a fearful electorate pushing politicians, both Republican and Democratic, to get tough on crime. But what has that wrought? Has it been justice or a wildly excessive culture of uh, punishment? How did this happen? And can we point the finger at others, powerful politicians, or are we all implicated? After gathering a lot of research, our guest today argues that when the rush toward mass incarceration began, it was because of public pressure. Today, we're starting to reverse that. And with author Professor Peter Enns, we'll discuss what he discovered about how America evolved into incarceration nation, as well as some hopeful glimmers of a different, more just future. Well, again, thanks for being with us. How did this book come about? What sparked you to write it? And who is the target audience? Who do you hope to reach by this? That's a, that's a great question, Bert, because this, this project started over seven years ago, um, and I was interested in just understanding how the United States became the world's incarceration leader. I was also directly experiencing some of the effects of mass incarceration through my involvement with Cornell's prison education program, and that's a program that teaches in uh, local prisons and teaches college courses in central and local prisons in central New York. And what was, I think, known at the time was that political decisions, policy decisions, 
in terms of changing the laws, changing how we punish certain crimes, these political decisions were a major factor. What wasn't understood and what I was interested in is why those political decisions occurred. And the research really led to a very different story than what conventional wisdom had been telling us. As is so often with so much of history, conventional wisdom is, you know, largely based on myth. Myth is a lot easier to understand than actual facts and reality, which takes a little bit more effort to find out. And you, in looking at this book, you've put in a lot of effort to this to find out really what it is. And I guess I have been part of that uh, large majority. Uh, my impression was wrong. I, I was under the impression that President Nixon, with his law and order, that's one word, law and order, rallying cry, callously used the fear of crime to get himself elected and that it was he who got the ball rolling. I, I discovered in your book that I was quite wrong. Tell us how Barry Goldwater's 1964 presidential campaign affected the issue, please. Sure. And so, yeah, the, because these politicians, like you mentioned, like Goldwater, Nixon, mention crime in so many of their political speeches, the, the view was they must have been leading the way. And because it was right. people, especially in the media, and then historians and other researchers looking back at these speeches, saw the references to crime, seemed that must have been the driving force. Right. What hasn't happened is a look at how public opinion was changing and when it was changing. Mm -hmm. And so... By failing to look at public opinion, it was really left out of the narrative of our understanding of these processes. And so one thing I did was look through hundreds of public opinion polls to understand the public's attitudes toward crime and justice, how and when the public became more punitive, and then to look at how that relates to uh, what, the, what politicians were saying. And it turns out they were following the public right. in most cases. Yeah, it so often happens. Uh, politicians oftentimes, you know, need to, uh, they, they follow. They're not really leaders. They, they follow it because they're basically, you know, about getting elected. And I thought it was fascinating, and, and, and you explained that in that same election cycle in 1964, it brought a big change in the attitude and policy of President Lyndon Johnson. What was his approach to crime before that election, and what did it change into, and, and why? The Johnson example is a really interesting one, as you, as you mentioned, because when he was campaigning in 64, he really was emphasizing addressing the roots of crime. This was a kind of a key, his key, his key view on the topic. And so if we think of the standard view that politicians led the way, Johnson won by an absolute landslide, largest landslide uh, victory in U.S. presidential election history. His approval ratings were were incredibly high following the the election, seventy percent or more. So this is the case where, if political, if if our national politicians were leading the way on crime, we would expect that the addressing the roots of crime, the social causes of crime, and putting more public investment into stopping crime and providing opportunities, that should have been what took off. But what happened was the public was becoming more punitive, and Johnson's speeches, President Johnson, that they started to change slowly at first, and then more and more in a punitive direction. 
and he, uh, it's not uh, all that well known, but Lyndon Johnson actually ushered in a pretty pretty important uh, crime legislation that moved moved criminal justice policy in a more punitive direction. Hmm. Like, w- what kind of specifics there did did he uh, push for that we're still kind of seeing today, perhaps? So this has to do with um, really shifting toward the federal government's role having more of a role in the criminal justice system. So historically, it had been much more at the state level. And as our criminal justice system has moved in a more punitive direction, one of the ways that's happened is the federal government extending its involvement in terms of uh, the scope of prisons, in terms of legislating uh, laws that carry mandatory minimum sentences and longer sentences. And we can, a really important shift in this direction began with Johnson. I wonder if we're starting to uh, see a, a reversal of that, like with, uh, you know, the, the incredibly antiquated uh, prohibition on marijuana, states seem to be taking the lead. And the old expression is that uh, states are the... Uh, petri dish really of, of democracy and that's you know where it really happens but there still is that federal law on marijuana and, and there's i understand there's pressure right now and perhaps there's some movement to to reclassify it from being a uh, schedule one narcotic to uh, allowing the states to do that and i, I wonder if that's any kind of a, of a trend you know it, there's been this fight throughout American history, you know, where power is legitimately. Should it be at the state level, that a lot of the Southerners have argued, or is it a strong federal government? What is this part of the change to, to move away from the federalization that, that you say uh, really started under President Lyndon Johnson? That's a really interesting observation, Bart, because when we look at the public opinion data and, and the overtime changes, in recent years, really since the late 90s, the public's been moving in a less punitive direction. Now, public opinion in this country is still punitive, but this shift is exactly in line with the examples you gave about some states uh, moving to decriminalize marijuana and then some discussion at the federal level. And so the we're, we're perhaps just starting to see some evidence of policies moving in a less punitive direction. And we're starting to hear prominent politicians, even even on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, wow. joining the conversation about criminal justice reform. Yeah, and it's been something that hasn't been talked about for a very, very long time. It's been swept under the rug, like basically we've done with our prison population. You know, out of sight is out of mind. And meanwhile, the prison population grows and grows and grows. And an awful lot of people, their families, their communities are very much affected by it. But it hasn't been in the public eye. But it's starting to be. And I, I have to say, I think that's a hopeful sign. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is author Professor Peter Enns. Uh, his new book is called Incarceration Nation, How the U.S., became the most punitive democracy in the world. Uh, and we're talking about that. And uh, I, I wanted to look at, in your book, you, you go into some real uh, specifics about, you know, the public. And I wanted to look at the role of public opinion and polling of that opinion, 
Please tell us what you found out about the role of the news media's depictions of crime and criminals in the 1960s. This is interesting. Sure. So news media consists historically and, and even to this day tend to over-report violent crimes, over-report crimes committed by minorities, and really yeah. focus on a more uh, sensationalist depiction of, of crime. Well, it sells papers. The thing that's interesting, though, is when crime increases, media covers more crime. When crime decreases, as you might expect, there's less coverage of crime. So what, what this means is, what this translates is, as crime was going up in the 60s and 70s and beyond, the frequency of the coverage of crime is also going up. And then remember the way the reporting takes place with the overemphasis on violent crime, crimes committed by minorities, and this sensationalistic approach. All of this is combining to push the public in a more punitive direction. And so with, I, without the media tracking crime so closely and reporting in this particular way, we might not expect the public to have become so punitive. I wonder why the media kind of started doing that uh, in the uh, 1960s. Was it just simply... Well, be, be, go ahead. Some, some historians would, and, and those who have looked at, at media over, you know, over, you know, even back into the early 1900s, would argue that this has always been the case, and what was different was the crime rate started to increase so much. And, and I think there, that this is a really important to keep in mind that there's almost an interaction between rising crime rates and the media reporting of, and how the media reports crime. And, and in that sense, crime's been going down since the 90s, and, and that's consistent with the public moving in, in a less punitive direction, as I mentioned before. Interesting. So they're kind of uh, moving together. More, the more they report it, uh, the more. Maybe, maybe I got that wrong. The more they report it, the more crime there is. The less they report it, the I would more. say that the if we think about the crime rate, if we look at media covering crime, we would overestimate how much crime there is ah. because the, the the we get way more coverage of crime, especially violent crime, than yeah. actually occurs. But if we look at how crime, how crime changes year to year, meaning is the crime rate going up or is the crime rate going down, the whether media coverage increases or decreases on a year to year basis, that over time pattern is pretty accurate. So at any one at any one moment in time, the amount of reporting of violent crime is going to be exaggerated. But from a year to year change perspective. That, that tracks pretty much with the actual reported crime rates. Yeah, as, as a former reporter myself, there's that old expression, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, it's about selling advertising. And, and newspapers want people to look at it. And sensationalism, hey, nothing like it to sell papers. If it's not sensational, it doesn't sell so much. So they certainly have exacerbated the problem. It seems they're very clear. And an awful lot of people are paying the price. How, how many Americans are behind bars these days uh, in numbers and, you know, perhaps as a percentage of the, of the population and even perhaps breaking that down to into the black population in particular, because there does seem to be some racist, racist effect here in the whole situation. 
sure. There's over 2 million people incarcerated in the U.S. today. So this mm. is a huge portion of the population. And as you mentioned at the outset, the highest incarceration rate in the world, they, the states uh, like Louisiana would with with that have the, uh, even a higher incarceration rate than the U.S. average, the number's about 1 in 33 individuals. Mm. And you also touched on a really important point of racial implications because yeah. uh, racial minorities and also individuals of lower uh, socioeconomic background are much, much more likely than the rest of the population to be in the, in the prison system. And so there are some estimates that place the, the number of um, African-American men as one in six mm. in, the, in, in the prison system. And so when we, when we talk about the, these numbers, the, the overall numbers and the number of people uh, directly affected are huge. And then when we talk about different, different demographic groups, uh, the numbers get even, even more extreme in many cases. Yeah, it's, it's, it's disturbing, to say the least. I mean, the fact that it's, as you say, one in six of, of African-American males, you know, either there's some, you know, natural proclivity among African-American males, or there's some kind of, uh, you know, many other factors that contribute to why so many blacks are in jail. And one, I can't help but think that, uh, you know, there's institutional racism that we've seen all across uh, society, which brings a a question, you know, you look at different polling methods, and it's, I got a poll last night, and you could tell who was asking the question by the way the, the questions were asked. And, you know, asking questions, the different polling method uh, can really affect the outcome of the poll. It's like it doesn't give you a chance to answer any differently from how they ask. And what did you discover about different polling methods and the effect on mass incarceration? How did the reliance on snapshots versus long-term measurement affect policy? And I think this relates to the whole racial aspect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I completely agree that social and structural issues uh, are the, and the research shows, are the driving factor behind these different rates of incarceration across groups. And then that, that uh, second comment of, of polling, how we ask the question um, in public opinion surveys, how, how the, you know, who's conducting the interview, really important details. And, and anytime anybody's ever evaluating public opinion data, and we hear in the media all the time, 60% of Americans think this, 40% think that, that question wording is, is critical yeah. to try to make sense of those numbers. And the way I dealt with this in my research was focusing on public opinion questions that have been asked the same exact way over time repeatedly. And what this means is if the question's asked a certain way that might, in many, many cases, it's unintentional. The, the mm-hmm. survey researchers are trying to do the best job they can. Sure. They really yeah. care about trying to inform us about the public's views. So they're trying their best, but maybe unintentionally, it's kind of leading people to give a more punitive response or a less punitive response. The key is, if we take the same question asked year after year after year, any possible bias or, or leaning in the way the question was asked is going to be constant because the same wording was used repeatedly. So what I'm able to do 
is evaluate how public attitudes have changed by using questions that were worded the same way each time they were asked. Yeah, interesting. And that whole thing about snapshot versus long-term measurement, you know, you get a quick picture in place versus long-term. That, you know, that way of, of looking at reality has, has got to affect policy, I would think. Perhaps you can talk about that a little bit, Professor. The, the, this, yeah, the overtime change in opinion is, is really, really important for two reasons. One, for that same fact that different question wording can lead to different responses. So if we look at three different questions, we might look at, get three different answers about the public. But what I've found is those three questions, if they're on the same issue area, if they're on attitudes toward the criminal justice system, they move in similar ways. So they all are telling us whether the public's getting more or less punitive. The other thing to keep in mind, because I mentioned that political decisions have been a major reason for the rise of mass incarceration, changing in sentencing laws, changing in uh, how we punish certain crimes. From a politician's perspective, knowing how public opinion is changing is the most important, because politicians... If, they're, if one of their goals is to be reelected, they want to move with the public. Right. If they don't move with public opinion, and public, the public's going in a certain direction, and politicians right. are going the other way, Oops. they're going to lose votes at the time of the next election. So it's hard. I mean, changing public opinion, boy, that's got to be interesting to, to measure. What are you know, the dynamics of, of public opinion changing? Is it now changing because there's so many people in jail that more and more people know people in jail? I, I wonder, you know, what it is, why it's starting to change now. Well, definitely these processes are complex and yeah. interact and can, can feed off each other. And so you, you can get a pattern where as the crime rate was decreasing through the late 90s, the 2000s, media is covering crime less the public's moving in a less punitive direction, that can then feed back, and how the media covers crime can change even further. Uh Then we get politicians following public opinion, and the scope of the debate changes. Hmm. So these these processes can can reinforce each other. Looking for over the last 60 years of the history of the carceral state in the U.S., I consistently find that public opinion is the main driving factor, but uh, it is important to keep in mind that different different forces can move to reinforce each other. They always seem to do that. It's always interesting. I mean, you know, nothing has one determinant. That that's for sure. It, it does seem, you know, just in terms of, of public perception, it seems that violent crime the rate was much higher in the late 70s than it is now. And, you know, New York City, there was a lot of crime back then. Now, much, much less. One has to wonder if the mass incarceration has been a factor in bringing down the rate of violent crime and increasing public safety. Certainly a lot of people would be led to believe that that the prison system, the incarceration system is working because violent crime crime rates are lower now. What's your response to that? The research on imprisonment, mass incarceration, and the effects in the crime rate 
there's really overwhelming consensus that we're way beyond any cost-effective level of incarceration. And there's a couple factors here. One is it's, there's broad agreement that if you keep locking more and more people up, crime will decrease. It has to because there's less people out there in the public who could commit a crime. But what's going to happen is the most dangerous, the most habitual criminals are going to be caught first. And so the, uh, there's this idea of diminishing marginal returns. If the incarceration rate keeps going up and up and up, the lower-level offenders are driving that. And so we get a lot of those incarcerated for low-level drug offenses, possession of small amounts of, of illegal substances. And that's not typically who the public has in mind when they're thinking of, yeah, sure. like you said, violent. that's not the violent criminals. There's a couple other factors, too. The length of prison sentence mm -hmm. is not associated, at least by uh, the, the overwhelming majority of research, with having a deterrent effect. And so much of the growth of the prison system has been longer sentences. Yeah. Those longer sentences aren't really helping reduce the, the crime rate. There's other social and structural factors that, are, that really have the largest influence on the, the crime rate. Sometimes people point to the, the scope of the economy. Other times it's uh, job opportunities, educational opportunities. But whether we look at research coming from economists, sociologists, political scientists, historians, the, uh, there's broad agreement that the scope of incarceration in the U.S. is way beyond any ideal cost-effective approach to reducing crime. Hmm. And it's really a lot cheaper to ha incarcerate fewer people and spend more on programs of policing, programs of employment and training and educational services. And, and I, I would say there's pretty, pretty strong agreement on those points. I wonder if the politicians are getting that. You know, it's so curious to me that there's conservatives, so-called conservatives in, in state legislatures and the federal government, of course, throughout the country, uh, who, who, you know, are allegedly conservatives. They want balanced budgets. Uh, and they're somehow at the same time, you know, they call for cut, 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 cut. They're increasing spending on more and more prisons from a purely economic vantage point, taking off on where you were, dollar for dollar, what are more effective ways to reduce crime? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great point because you're right. In the, you, many of politicians through the 80s, early 90s, who were really campaigning on a smaller government we're increasing the size of government by moving, uh, you know, expanding the scope of the criminal justice system and particularly the prison complex. And we were seeing that from both Democratic and conservative politicians and policymakers. So I, I would suggest that's, again, consistent with both of those, uh, both parties following public opinion. If, if in terms of cost-effective strategies, and reducing the amount spent on the prison system. Mandatory minimums uh, is, is a policy that should be revised and scaled back. The idea that certain, um, 
certain crimes, especially low-level drug offenses, are going to carry long prison sentences with no or very little opportunity for parole. This is incredibly expensive to maintain uh, people behind bars. And then the, the costs trickle down because if somebody's in prison for 10 years or 20 years and then they're released from prison and they haven't had uh, job training or any, prepar- any preparedness for being returned to society, the opportunity to find employment and become, a, become uh, gainfully employed, uh, that has a drain on the overall economy because the economy does better when we have more people working, more people purchasing things, more people paying taxes. And so you could, the, the fiscal uh, effects of a large prison population can go beyond just the actual cost of keeping individuals in prison. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And you think about, you know, the effects on their families and their kids, you know, who, who grow up without a father. And usually it's a male, of course. And, you know, the, the economic effects on, on the neighborhood, on the community there, not particularly positive. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, Americans are really busy. We don't look into things. We don't often, you know, do the research and just get sort of a snapshot picture. Oftentimes, of course, that is that is wrong. And it does seem like an awful lot of people kind of mix up the ideas of revenge with justice. They're really two different things. They're not at all the same. The death penalty is one example. And an awful lot of people, I think if you were to ask the average American, you know, about the death penalty, they would think, well, why keep him in jail for all this time? Why not just, you know, put these heinous criminals to death? Save a lot of money. Your book looks at the at this example of American exceptionalism compared to other advanced industrialized democracies, forgetting for the moment any moral question of the state killing people, which is a big one, but from a standpoint of economic and effective reduction in crime, what do we know about the death penalty? What did you find out? Yeah, the, the evidence suggests the death penalty doesn't really have a deterrent effect on crime. And I, th- I think you're, you're right in the sense of when, we, when many members of the public hear about a particularly heinous crime and they think about the death penalty, you know, it's really tough to disentangle yeah. the ideas of revenge right. and punishment versus what's the best in terms of what many of the same members of the public think should be the goals of criminal justice policy, which, which should be to lead to a safer society. And if, if somebody, the, the costs of keeping individuals on, on death row yeah. are incredibly expensive, those expenditures could be, in many cases, used somewhere else. And so if we think about, well, if the money spent on the, the prison system was being spent on more police, that would be more likely to lead to lower crime rates. A, a related example, uh, in addition, so the, the United States has a very high uh, death penalty rate and rate of executions relative to other advanced industrial democracies. In fact, much, much higher. Yeah. Another related sentence is a sentence of life without parole. So this mm. is a life sentence with no opportunity for parole. When we consider population size and adjust for that, the, the 
number of inmates serving life without parole in the U.S. is 180 times the comparable number in England. And in Canada, that sentence doesn't even exist. The idea of sentencing someone to life in prison with no opportunity for parole is, is, not, a, is not a sentence in, mm. in Canada. And so the, the putting somebody in prison, you know, maybe they're 18, 19, 20, no. for a life sentence is, is a, a, mm. a, a huge financial drain. Oh, I'm sure. It sounds kind of criminal to me, really, to put somebody that young in jail for the rest of their lives. Uh, just, and I wonder about the, the crime rate in Canada, where they do not have mandatory minimums. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. The, um, no, crime, crime is a very different story uh, um, in Canada. And so I don't have the specific numbers sure. in, in front of me, but the, the crime rate and the reaction to crime has been different. And I think it's important to remember, in the United States, the crime rate varies substantially over time. And so mm. we're at some, in, in terms of historical standards, we're at very low crime rates right now in the United States. And so oftentimes in these uh, debates, the specific historical and political context and the specific views of the public changing over time, we often forget about the, these things change in really meaningful ways. And since the 1950s and 60s, we've seen major increases and decreases in, in the crime rate in this country. And those are, there are a number of factors that are involved in that. I'm remembering uh, 1976 when I was uh, helping out my candidate for president, Fred Harris. Notice he didn't win, but he was saying if you draw a map of high unemployment, high poverty areas, and you draw, draw a map of high crime areas, you're drawing the same map. I wonder how accurate that is. Is that too simplistic? Well, it's, it's, it's surprising how many different views there are about what explains crime and what doesn't. And there's a lot of competing views. Uh, and, and there seems to be agreement that economic conditions matter. But a lot of researchers were surprised when the, with the recent Great Recession and the decline in economic conditions did not correspond with an immediate rise in crime. And so I think as a, as a society, we're, we're still trying to figure out all the causes. One, one thing I found in my research that was very surprising to me, the, although crime rates differ dramatically from state to state and from city to city, over time, they tend to move in pretty similar ways. And so if, if crime rates moving increasing in one state, it's probably increasing in other states. And if it's decreasing in one city, it's probably decreasing in other cities. If we look at the overtime data, those, those commonalities uh, dominate in, in terms of the overtime patterns. Interesting. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're on Keeping Democracy Alive, a group effort. Believe me, our guest today is Peter Enns. Associate Professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University. His new book is called Incarceration Nation, How the United States Became the Most Punitive Democracy in the World. And we are looking at how we became such a punitive society. And in comparison, you know, and other industrialized democracies, Europe, we talked about Canada a little bit. They don't, I don't think they have the death penalty in Europe, and they approach it differently in Europe 
did political leaders actually take the lead there? Or how has crime been affected by the abolition of the death penalty in Europe? And, and what can you tell us about the European experience as opposed to uh, American exceptionalism? Sure. Yeah, there's some interesting, interesting contrast there. And in, when, the, when European countries and Canada abolished, uh, and they did this at different times, but when the, the death penalty was abolished, we didn't see a uh, corresponding um, spike in crime at all. And there wasn't a, there wasn't a public backlash um, either. And so there's been some debate where the, the politicians in these countries, were they leading, were they going against the public, or were they, were they following the public? I, I show a little bit of evidence in, in the book suggesting that actually maybe in, in Europe and Canada they were, they were keeping public opinion in mind, just like I suggest for the U.S. But there's an interesting feature in the U.S. context. The fact that we have a two-party system with mm. Democrats and, and Republicans and the fact that we have a presidential system means that in cases like this that are salient to the public and criminal justice issues, crime have long been a salient issue for the public, we see more responsiveness to changes in public opinion than we do in other democratic systems. Hmm. I wonder why that is. Any guess? Yeah, well, one, one really important factor is, so if, we, if in other countries that have a proportional system of representation, which uh. lends to more parties, you get more distinct views. But think about the mm -hmm. U.S. context, which is dominated by the Democratic and Republican Party. And if we consider an issue like crime, there's, you know, we talked about President Lyndon Johnson earlier. Mm -hmm. For a while, he was focusing on the roots of crime. Yeah. Investing in addressing the roots of crime, while most people, uh, most researchers argue, is uh, the, the most uh, fiscally sound approach, right. it often takes time to see the results. If you invest uh, in the education uh, system, invest in communities and opportunities, it may take time for the full benefits of those policies to come out. Now, think about a politician being able to say, put more people in prison, spent more on police and prisons, increase the number of patrols and the number of prosecutors. Those yeah. statements happen right away. And I think one thing that has happened in the United States, when the Republican Party was more in tune to public opinion sooner and focusing on these immediate responses, even if those weren't the ideal policy responses, the Democratic Party had an incentive to move in that direction. Yeah. It's much harder to keep, to say, I'm following public opinion, but it's going to take a little while for all these policies to have their full effect. Mm -hmm. And so once the Republican Party followed the public on this issue, the Democrats had an incentive, and, and that goes back to exactly why we saw President Johnson switching his stance on crime, even though he had such high approval ratings following his, his win in 64, he, the incentive was to start talking tougher on crime right. and show the public that he was listening. Ah, uh, yeah. And, of course, as Americans, it, it seems to me that, it, that, that our, uh, uh, in, you know, her, our insistence on instant solutions, we need instant gratification right now, that's kind of a problem when it comes to making public policy because it rarely 
actually achieves its goals that way. And, you know, certainly when, when House Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill, a Democrat, worked closely with, with Ronald Reagan uh, for both of them, for both parties, as, as you're illustrating, you know, they looked tough on crime and it paid off in voter support. And what about this fear of looking soft on crime? Is that still as powerful now as it was back then when the three strikes you're out, those kind of mandatory minimums? Is that in there? Is there, I know, I mean, former politician myself, you know, a lot of people are very, very afraid of looking soft on crime. How much of a factor is that still today? There's, there is still some concern without a doubt, but there's a difference in the, in the political climate of the, 80s, mid-90s, when public opinion was still becoming more punitive and reaching its peak, appearing soft on crime is exactly opposite the direction of public opinion. Now, in the recent years, when the public's been becoming less punitive, now politicians are, are still somewhat concerned, and they don't want to go too far, but you can see this shift. You can see a shift in, in, the, in the conversation, how they talk about it, and even Democrats and Republicans. So, for example, Senator Rand Paul and Senator Cory Booker, Republican and Democrat, both coming together to on, on the same policy, both advocating criminal justice reform. And in some ways, this is really stunning. The Congress is more politically polarized than at any point in history, the U.S. Congress. Right, right. Yet on this issue, we see some, some evidence of the parties coming together. And I, I did not think we would be observing that if the public wasn't moving in a less punitive direction and if the public wasn't realizing that the U.S. criminal justice system had gone too far and become too punitive and really in an in, in unproductive way. Yeah, and sometimes we're rather slow learners here, but eventually, uh, you know, it is having its effect. And, you know, among my many liberal friends, it's easy to look at today's mass incarceration disaster and point to those bad Republicans. But I think it was Ronald Reagan who said facts are such inconvenient things. You found, and I think this is interesting, that great liberal Democratic icons, not only Lyndon Johnson, but Hubert Humphrey and Robert Kennedy, also carried that tough-on-crime banner. Uh, you know, there was LBJ's switch. But there's also, you know, there's the image and then there's reality. I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit, I love history here, uh, about Humphrey and Bobby Kennedy on this issue, great liberals from the late 60s. Yeah, sure. And this comes from looking into archival materials of memos and discussions at the time from their campaigns or interviews coming from people who were uh, important uh, actors, uh, campaign aides or managers, uh, advisors, and, and them talking about crime and consistently what they say on the Democratic side. So when you mentioned uh, Humphrey and, and, and Robert Kennedy before his assassination, they talk about the internal debate in the campaign. Because from a political side, from a policy side, the, the policy advisors were often leaning in a less punitive direction. The, w the way they believed to deal with crime was, again, address the social roots of crime. From a political standpoint, from an election standpoint, 
these archival materials, they consistently reference the view that the public was more punitive, the public was demanding a response to crime, and that they felt that to have a chance in, in the election, they had to take a, a tougher stance. And so it's really interesting to go back through these historical materials and read about the debates that were going on uh, within the campaigns and how to balance the, the policy views they had held with what they perceived as real uh, real demand for a, a more um, tougher stance on crime from the public. Interesting. So they were squeezed. I can just imagine the discussions in the back room, squeezed between, you know, going with the liberal base and going with the demand being tough on crime. And getting back to our old buddy Dick Nixon, who did, of course, avoid jail, uh, he effectively manipulated fear of crime. And let's face it, I mean, when, when FDR said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, fear is powerful. I'm sure <laughs> that came up in all kinds of research that you found is, you know, how powerful fear is and how people want, you know, we're going to do something quick, you know, just just nail it. So Nixon won in 68 with his law and order, but you established if he was, uh, but it, to establish if he was leading public opinion or following it, you referred back to his unsuccessful bid for the White House in 1960. Why look back almost a decade? And, and what did you find about that? That's an interesting story as well. Yeah, this was this was a real puzzle to me because it was it's so so much attention has been given to Nixon in '68 and the successful presidential campaign and just how much he mentioned crime and being tough on crime. But when we think about his his unsuccessful campaign in 1960, it's not really associated with crime. And so I look back through the the speeches during that period. And he, he almost never mentioned crime. The only time, he, he mentioned crime three times in speeches in 1960. And it was all in reference to international affairs. And he would say to deal with dictators in other countries, you needed to show them that crime didn't pay. So he wasn't talking about domestic crime or dealing with crime in 1960. It became a feature of his campaign in 68. And so I, was, I wondered... If he was such a tough-on-crime person, if his goal was to lead the public in this way, why didn't it happen in 1960? And so I started going through internal memos from his campaign, which are available in the Nixon Presidential Library, and they were repeatedly focusing on public opinion polls in 68. And they were conducting their own polls, and they were looking at other public opinion polls being conducted by national polling organizations. And what they, their memos keep referencing crime being the number one or close to the number one public concern. And so they also conducted polls in the 1960 campaign. So the campaign team for Nixon noticed this difference. They noticed this was a new issue, and they started crafting a campaign strategy to address this public concern. And in fact, one of the memos specifically shows Nixon polling behind Humphrey by three percentage points. And they write that the gut vote is leaning toward Humphrey, but they can appeal to voters by continuing to emphasize crime and being tough on crime. So this was, if we, if we take a look at these internal memos like I have, it was a strategy that was developed in response to their read of public opinion at the time and how that had changed. I can't imagine the 
size of the pile of papers that you must have looked through and I, I, I can't I don't know how many of them have been digitized we're talking uh, on uh, keeping democracy live here about the new book incarceration nation how the United States became the most punitive democracy in the world our guest is author Peter K ends and t- people watch a lot of TV let's face it especially here in America crime dramas account for seven of the top 20 most popular shows on television. While your research found that they weren't directly causative of the public's eagerness to punish severely, you concluded that such shows can be used as as predictors. Tell us about that. Sure, absolutely. And, yeah, the crime dramas are a really interesting part of the story for me, and I wanted to understand how much do they go, because crime on TV and how crime's been portrayed has really changed over time and increased dramatically. So I wanted to think about how much could this have been a a factor in the public's rising punitiveness. So the way I dealt with this was to get data on viewership from Nielsen, the company that tracks viewership, and then categorize that by what proportion of TV viewers were watching crime dramas over time. And what we see is Early on in the, as the, uh, in the rise of mass incarceration, it doesn't look like crime dramas were driving this. Uh, and, and one of the reasons we can see that is the, the family viewership uh, hour, mm-hmm. which really cha- you know, tried to make the uh, viewership more family-friendly, when that happened and attention to crime on TV in terms of entertainment television declined, the public still kept becoming more punitive, right? So we see this split. But there's also been a lot of interesting research uh, where experiments are done showing different, um, different shows, different crime shows, and how these crime shows depict criminals do influence how punitive people respond in surveys. And so the idea here is if we want to understand how crime on TV has influenced the public's punitiveness, especially early on. This wasn't the main factor, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that we can't think uh, that that these shows have zero influence. And I I think people have probably experienced this, that what people's attitudes toward the criminal justice system, the main factor driving that is not whether they just watch the show, uh, you know, watch the Law & Order rerun. At the same time, people may feel while they're watching the show, certain reactions that can be very powerful. (laughs) I wonder about European TV. Do they have, did you find anything out about uh, the percentage of of crime shows on on European TV? And I wonder if that is a uh, uh, relative Yeah, that's a great question that I think is an open area for future research because I was able to get data on television viewership by the type of show back to the 50s in the U.S. And I have not been able to get data uh, doing the same thing across countries, but I, I agree that would be very fascinating to look into. Uh, I'd be very interesting, yeah. The ways in which we get our news today, it's, it's very, very different. It used to be three networks, that was it, that's where we got our news and information. Uh, so, And the nature of media itself is changing. There's been dramatic changes over the past two decades. I wonder how these changes might affect future reforms. What's your think of, uh, thought about that? This, it, yeah, we really live in interesting times, and 
the changing dynamic of media is one, one of these factors that is going to be so important. And, and we don't fully understand this, because as you mentioned, people now get information from Twitter, from Facebook, uh, online, and what, what, uh, what often people don't even realize is this information is catered to how people, what, what they've looked at, what they've searched on the web uh, in the past. So if I do a Google search, and for the term crime or incarceration, and one of your listeners does the same Google search, we can get different results based on what we've searched and what we've clicked on in the past. The same thing, information coming on Facebook is following an algorithm based on what we've liked and what we've clicked on in the past. Yeah, so the, the days of three dominant networks right. providing similar stories and the public uh, largely getting the same information, yeah. those days are changing. And so what I've found with media following the crime rate and how that influences public opinion, we, we don't know in the coming years if these relationships will hold or if they'll change. And so it's, uh, I would say it's uncertain, but also exciting times. Yeah, it is for for change, and a lot of people who have looked into this uh, subject uh, have recognized that yeah, this incredible mass incarceration, it ain't working. It's got to change. What what organizations might there be out there that that may be most effective? How can people participate in in helping our politicians see that you know, it's it's safe. You can talk about, uh, you know, really reducing mass incarceration. What, what new tools may uh, exist out there? Yeah, sure. You know, I think the, the public now um, has a lot of options, both in terms of getting information and in terms of uh, presenting their views or communicating their views to politicians. So in terms of getting information, so one, just all types of media are covering the issue of, of incarceration more than they have. And I think that's a, a really positive... Uh, and when I say more, also in a more complex view, and really helping the public understand a more nuanced view, there's also specific um, organizations. And so the Marshall Project is a nonprofit organization dedicated entirely to covering criminal justice and incarceration issues. There's also um, the Sentencing Project oh, right. is a... Uh, been around for a long time, just doing a terrific job providing information to the public. Right on Crime is uh, another organization, which, as you might guess from the name, is leans more in the conservative direction. Mm -hmm. And so Right on Crime refers to right as in politically mm -hmm. right, and right in terms of they believe they have the right views. And I mention that because it is not that this is an issue that just those on the left or just those on the right are talking about and trying to present information. This is, this is both. And so, um, so there's a lot of sources of information to, get, to be more informed. And in terms of communicating with politicians, yeah. it's now easier to reach politicians than ever before because we could always send the letter in, and that still works. Mm -hmm. can always pick up the phone and try to reach someone or leave a message. Uh, can also email. And we don't, it, it's sometimes hard to know if I send an email to my local politician, is that person going to read that and respond personally? Maybe, maybe not. Right. But if, if a lot of people are doing that, the right. message that a lot of people are sending a specific, uh, uh, are, are voicing their opinion in a certain way, that, that, that gets through. And so 
I, my, my research shows, although the exact policy we want or the specific change we want, those tend not to occur in broad brushstrokes. The direction the public's going is the direction the criminal justice system goes. And in that sense, it's a, it's a, the public has a powerful voice. In, in, in where we in the direction we go as a society. Absolutely. And I can tell you being a former elected official myself, you know, if you get one letter, chances are you're gonna think there's quite a few other people who didn't make the effort to write the letter or the email, but a lot of people feel that way. It absolutely is effective. We are not powerless here. We there's a little bit of democracy left. We can keep democracy alive. The new book is called Incarceration Nation How the United States Became the most punitive democracy in the world. Our guest has been its author, Peter K. Enns. Thank you so much for being with us today. Very informative, and uh, it's nice to hear that uh, maybe some new direction is happening. Great. Thank you so much, Bert. Thank you for listening. The first thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle blowing And a youngin's dream of growing up to ride On a freight train leaving town Not knowing where I'm bound And no one could change my mind but mama tried One and only rebel child From a family meek and mild My mama seemed to know what lay in store Despite all my Sunday learning Towards the bad I kept on turning Till mama couldn't hold me anymore I turned 21 in prison Doing life without parole No one could steer me right But mama tried, mama tried Mama tried to raise me better But her pleading I denied That leaves only me to blame Cause mama tried Dear old daddy, rest his soul Left my mom a heavy load She tried so very hard to fill his shoes Working hours without rest Wanted me to have the best She tried to raise me right, but I refused And I turned 21 in prison Doing life without parole No one could steer me right, but mama tried Mama tried, mama tried to raise me better But her pleading I denied That leaves only me to blame Cause mama tried